introduction to the eighth chapter of Joshua, reading almost the, chap- the entire chapter, not uh, the final paragraph, but verses 1 to 29. After her crushing victory at Jericho, Israel suffered an unexpected defeat administered by the much smaller town of Ai. That setback was the direct result of sin in the camp, which the Lord uncovered. The sinner was identified, he was removed from the community, and Israel is now ready to commence her attack against Ai once again. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given you into your I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. What a mistake Achan had made, and how unnecessary. Now they could keep the plunder. Once the people had proved themselves willing to give the Lord their entire obedience, he offered them the silver and the gold and the clothing from Shinar that Achan couldn't bear to leave ungrabbed when he saw them in Jericho. You don't need to covet the possessions the Lord has given someone else, and it's not going to do you any good if you do. Wait for the Lord's provision. When it comes, it will be enough, and there will be no guilt mixed in with it. God may require the first fruits, but he's happy for us to enjoy the harvest. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, They're fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people." Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. Now, the great historical, textual... um, exegetical problem of Joshua chapter 8 is whether these 5,000 men are part of the same 30,000 mentioned earlier, that is, of the 30,000 sent early, only 5,000 were used, or whether Joshua set up two separate ambushes, 
one to set the town on fire when its defenders came out to fight Israel, and another to lurk in waiting should they be needed, either to hit the men of Ai from still another direction or to ward off any relief column that might be coming or might be sent from nearby Bethel. In my admittedly non-expert view, it seems unlikely that a force as large as 30,000 men would or could hide in ambush for an attack on a town of of 12,000 inhabitants. One solution to the problem is that a manuscript error has crept in and that the original number in verse 3 was 5,000, not 30,000. There are other suggestions, such as 30,000 represents the entire force of which 5,000 were placed in ambush. No solution is without its difficulties, but the text itself poses the problem. Once the battle began, we wonder what became of the 30,000 soldiers mentioned in verse 3, if indeed they represented a separate force. Nothing is said of them in the rest of the chapter, and they do not figure in the battle. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city, and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. The Arabah is the rift Valley in which Jericho, the Jordan, and the Dead Sea are located. So the viewpoint from which this battle is being described is from the west toward uh, the east, looking toward the east. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them, and as they pursued... Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. The battle was larger than it might otherwise have been because the army of Bethel joined that of Ai in attacking the Israelite invaders. Much effort has been exerted through the years, but still we do not know with certainty the location of either of these two cities. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of I looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. And they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness, that is, the Israelite army, turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so that they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped that the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, 
And all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword. All Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Now Joshua is keeping his hand raised with the javelin or the sword in it reminds the reader of Moses doing a similar thing when Israel fought the Amalekites, as we read in Exodus 17. Moses also kept his hands up during the course of that battle, uh, and he likewise had something in his hand, namely what was called the staff of God. On that occasion, the battle lasted a long time, and Moses had difficulty keeping his hands raised for so long a time, so Aaron and Hur held up his hands uh, for him. Such a posture symbolic of prayer indicated that the army was counting on the Lord for victory. No doubt the same sense here. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned I and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. Now, the word for that heap of ruins in Hebrew is tell. And it survives today as the name for almost any archaeological site, a hill that's being dug down into layer by layer. Ancient cities tended to be destroyed in battle or by fire and then rebuilt on the same place. Layer was built upon destruction layer because... Any city well located need to be, needed to be on a hill and on a hill where there was a nearby source of water. So ideal locations had to be reused. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. He'd been killed. He was, his body was being exposed by being hung on the tree. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. As we learn in Deuteronomy 21:23, to hang a dead body from a tree was a sign of it having been cursed or that person having been cursed by God. If we didn't know this already, we are reminded once again that the people of Canaan were losing their lives and losing their cities because of their sins and God's judgment against them. The great heap of stones, by the way, uh, is precisely what was used to bury Achan, as you read in, across the page in chapter 7, verse 26. The same phrase is found there as well. A reminder that the fundamental issues here are spiritual, not racial or national that an unfaithful and disobedient Israelite would be treated in the same way a Canaanite would be treated. The chapter ends on the note of this symmetry between Achan on the one hand and the king of Ai on the other. Our Father in heaven, we have here an elaborate account of an ancient battle, but there is more here than meets the eye. Help us to grasp the reason why this chapter is written as it is. The lessons here for us, these more than 3,000 years later, help us, O oh God, to understand 
to take that understanding to heart and to live according to it. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. We have before us this morning a passage that is very typical of the Bible and in respect to its most basic theme, namely the way of salvation. As you may remember, a number of thoughtful students of the Word of God have referred to Deuteronomy, the book immediately before Joshua, as the Romans of the Old Testament. By that they mean that the book of Deuteronomy contains the most thorough and systematic account of the theology of salvation and believing life that we find in the first 39 books of the Bible, much as Paul's letter to the Romans does among the final 27 books of the Bible, what we call the New Testament. Fair enough, but as I have already had a number of occasions to note, and as I might have proved to you to wearying effect as we moved through the first seven chapters of the book of Joshua, the fingerprints of Deuteronomy are found everywhere in Joshua. References and citations and allusions to statements in Deuteronomy abound in Joshua, such as, for example, the point I just noted, that Joshua's treatment of the king of Ai follows the prescription laid down in Deuteronomy 21. In fact, it is not too much to say that Joshua is the historical outworking of the theological and spiritual vision of the book of Deuteronomy. We've already noted on a number of occasions that Joshua is not only telling us what happened when Israel invaded the promised land, but teaching us by that narrative the fundamental principles of the gospel, the way of salvation, and the Christian life. The church has always understood this clearly as it is taught in the New Testament. It's not a controversial point. Certainly not in the Reformed Church, where it has always been understood that the message of the Bible is fundamentally the same from the beginning to the end. Deuteronomy may be called the Romans of the Old Testament precisely because the theology and the ethics one finds in both books are the same. But both Deuteronomy and Joshua, and for that matter Romans and the rest of the New Testament, teach us is the way of salvation. How is victory achieved? How do men and women, boys and girls, take possession of the promised land? Another way of talking about salvation. Well, the answer is, by the grace or the gift of God, received by faith. There is both a divine dimension and a human dimension of the way of salvation. You find that fact face up on virtually every page of the Bible, but it is a particularly noteworthy emphasis here in Joshua. We've had occasion to notice it already on several occasions, but it is particularly prominent in the narrative of Joshua chapter 8. There is that that God must do. There is that that we must do. And it is this interplay between the divine and the human in salvation that has caused all the trouble through the Christian ages. After the triune life of the one living and true God and the existence of two natures in the one person of God the Son, this interplay between the divine and the human in salvation is the theological problem of the Christian faith. Consequently, it was predictable 
that there would be Christian thinkers and preachers who would answer the question, this question, this most fundamental question in different ways. Why is one person saved and another person not? What finally makes the difference? Sometimes it seems perfectly clear that God is waiting upon man to decide for or against him. As we read the Lord saying to Israel in Deuteronomy 30, 19 to 20, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live obeying or loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him for he is your life. There it is. The alternative. Choose. Make your decision. And so in the New Testament, Paul in Romans 10, 9 through 13, is entirely typical. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No wonder then that so many in the history of Christendom have concluded that it is the man himself, the exercise of the human will, that makes the ultimate difference. Why is one man saved and another man not? Because one man chose to believe and to follow God, and the other man chose not to do so. In the case of the battle of Ai, this is a fact that seems much in evidence. Achan did not believe the word of God, and his actions demonstrated his unbelief. And he was condemned, and he was excluded from the promised land. The rest of the nation, on the other hand, trusted Yahweh and gained the promised land. Surely in these two chapters, it is obvious that the emphasis falls on the difference between the choice that Achan made, on the one hand, the exercise of Achan's will, and the choice that everybody else made, the exercise of their will, and the respective consequences or outcomes that followed those two choices. But of course, as you well know, that's hardly all the Bible says in answer to this question. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 37, of God's particular love for Israel and his redemption of her alone. In Deuteronomy 7, and often thereafter throughout the book, we read of God's choice of Israel to be his own people. Throughout Deuteronomy, we read of Israel's enduring penchant for unbelief, ingratitude, unfaithfulness, disobedience. And in chapter 30, verse 6, God says explicitly, He has to change His people's heart or they will never love Him, never trust Him, never follow Him. And you know, know enough of the argument of Romans to know how emphatically Paul teaches that salvation is God's gift to the undeserving, that it was accomplished by Christ without regard to the exercise of our will, that it requires God's mighty work to transform a human heart, and make a human being a new creation, that it is a gift given to those whom God has chosen, and that it is God himself who makes from the same lump of clay vessels for honor and vessels for dishonor. 
There are so many such statements in the Word of God that it was inevitable as well that there would be those who conclude that salvation ultimately rests not on the exercise of the human will, but on the exercise of the divine will and on the work of God. We here at Faith Presbyterian fall into this latter group of Christians. However, there are variations of that second position, known in the history of Christian theology as Calvinism or the Reformed faith. Because the doctrine of sovereign grace, that salvation is God's gift and God's work and God's achievement from start to finish, because that doctrine is taught in the Bible so emphatically and so beautifully and illustrated so powerfully, because it is a doctrine that so wonderfully glorifies God and His grace and power, it often gains a captivating hold on a Christian's mind and heart. I don't know how many Christian people I have met through the years who, like Charles Spurgeon, say that when they discovered the doctrines of divine grace, this is Spurgeon, I felt that I had grown on a sudden from a babe into a man, that I had found the clue to the truth of God. But as a result of the mesmerizing effects of these great truths, there have been Calvinists through the ages who have tended to ignore or to minimize the human dimension of salvation, which is obviously also emphatically taught in the Bible. These people have often been called hyper-Calvinists. Though the term has a more technical meaning, it is more popularly used to describe people who are so enamored of God's sovereign grace that they have a great deal of difficulty finding much room for the exercise of the human will in the outworking of salvation. We have such people today in our Presbyterian church in America. They may not be theoretical or theological hyper-Calvinists, but they are practical hyper-Calvinists. They talk almost exclusively about grace, and they find little time to discuss or to preach what the Bible teaches on virtually its every page, namely the personal responsibility of every human being for his or her salvation and his or her Christian life. The best sort of Calvinists, however, have always been those who, in faithfulness to the Word of God, and no matter the difficulty this poses for creating a neat and logically coherent system of theology, have recognized that God's sovereign grace, notwithstanding the human element, must be given its due, and the exercise of the human will in salvation and the Christian life must not be ignored. Here is one scholar on John Calvin, himself the patron saint, as it were, of Reformed theology. It's a somewhat difficult quotation, but listen carefully. You'll get, you'll get the point. One of the most interesting and striking general features of Calvin's work, both systematic and exegetical, arises with regard to the problems of the limited clarity of the revelation in Scripture and the limited powers of comprehension of the believer. This feature is the predominance of single themes which stand out in their individualistic clarity. The sovereignty of God in salvation. 
Salvation is God's gift and God's work and God's doing. The human responsibility, the accountability of people for believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and following him. Both of those doctrines stand out very clearly in the Bible, he's saying. This feature is the predominance of single themes which stand out in their individualistic clarity as over against the numerous systematic inconsistencies that arise because the systematic interrelationship of these themes is relegated by Calvin to the status of incomprehensibility. Doctrines that are clear in themselves but logically incompatible with one another are placed side by side because Calvin finds them so in Scripture. I don't think, by the way, that logically incompatible is the best way to describe the situation we find either in the Bible or in Calvin's theology. These themes are compatible enough. They exist in perfect consistency with all the truth in God's mind, but our minds are too small to see how they can be consistent with one another or how they are so completely compatible with one another. He goes on, when Calvin's theology is looked at as a logical system, he is seen to have developed the doctrine of the omnipotence of God into a complete determinism. God determines everything while at the same time maintaining with equal vigor a contradictory doctrine of the responsibility of the individual. Again, I don't think contradictory doctrine is quite right. They may appear contradictory, but Calvin never believed they were in actual conflict. And so the scholar concludes, Calvin then was completely convinced of a high degree of clarity and comprehensibility of individual themes of the Bible, but he was also so utterly submissive before divine mystery as to create a theology containing many logical inconsistencies rather than a rationally coherent whole. He never conceived of his theological task as an effort to harmonize the deep paradoxes of Scripture or to explain what he regarded as its central mysteries. We can't do that with the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. We can't do that with the three persons of the one triune God. And we can't do it with divine sovereignty and individual responsibility. Clarity of individual themes, incomprehensibility of their interrelation, that is the hallmark of Calvin's theology. And that loyalty to the double emphasis we find everywhere in Holy Scripture, come wind, come weather, has been the hallmark of the best of Reformed or Calvinistic theology ever since. Calvinist preachers have rung the changes on salvation as a free gift, as the achievement of God, doing for unworthy and incapable sinners what they would never want to do, never be able to do of themselves. But they've also rung the changes on the absolute responsibility that every human being bears who hears the gospel to respond to that gospel with faith and obedience or suffer the consequences. They have credited God with our salvation to, from beginning to end and in all the links of the chain, but they have encouraged men and women to believe in order that they may be saved and have warned them that if they do not believe, 
They will not be saved and they will have no one to blame but themselves when they fail to reach the promised land. As I've often told you, Rabbi Duncan, the 19th century Scottish Presbyterian missionary and theologian, was only being true to the central emphases of the Bible and Reformed theology when he said that God works half and man works half is false. That God works all and man does all is true. Now, what does all of that have to do with Joshua chapter 8? Well, this. As I said at the outset, this section of Joshua presents this characteristic tension between the divine and the human in salvation in a very typical way. We've already witnessed the divine power giving Israel the victory at Jericho. She didn't take the city. God did. The victory was his. That was the entire point of the seven days of marching the Ark of the Covenant, the emblem of the divine presence with Israel around the city. But one man wanted what he wanted and took some of the treasure he found in Jericho that had been devoted for the temple. The result was that Israel was defeated before I. But once she had been restored to God's good graces, we're back where we were before. The chapter begins with a familiar summary statement of the Lord. I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. Yahweh doesn't say, if you do this and you do that, I will give you the city. The verb is passed. The deed is done. The outcome is secured. What is more, the Lord tells Joshua how the battle is going to be fought. The army is to feign an attack on the city. It's to feign retreat, draw the enemy away from the city so that it might be burned by that part of the army lying in ambush. We don't overhear the Lord giving Joshua all of these instructions, but his command to attack from ambush in verse 2 suggests that the rest of the plan of the battle was likewise from the Lord. The walls of Ai didn't come tumbling down. Nothing like that would happen again in Israel's conquest of Canaan, but it is clearly stated here, as it was in the case of Jericho, that the Lord had given the city into Israel's hand. This part of the promised land was also Yahweh's gift to his people. When they hadn't the Lord on their side, they got whipped and sent back to camp with their tails between their legs. When the Lord was on their side, the victory was complete. None of the enemy remained alive. On the other hand, We have all of this action on the part of Israel. We have her scrupulous obedience to the orders that Yahweh had given her. We have her going into battle, sacking the town, defeating the army in a battle in the open field. What is more, we have Joshua with his hand raised, holding his sword or javelin throughout the entire battle. In the previous case, if you remember, when Moses' hands... Um, during the battle, began to grow heavy and he couldn't keep them up. As soon as his hands began to drop, the battle went badly for Israel and the Amalekites began to prevail. But when Aaron and Hur lifted Moses' hands again, Israel captured uh, or Israel prevailed in the battle and the enemy was defeated. The raised hand was the emblem of Israel's confidence in Yahweh to give her the victory. It was an embodied prayer. 
calling upon the Lord. We may safely assume that had Yahweh or Joshua ignored Yahweh's command to raise his hand, the battle would have turned against Israel in just the same way that it had in Moses' day. There's a great deal of Israel's will and Israel's action in Joshua 8. Indeed, and this is what drew my attention to this in the first place, the account of the battle at Ai is considerably more detailed than the account of any other battle in the conquest of Canaan that is reported in the book of Joshua. The emphasis falls on what Israel did to gain this victory. It's not the case that the city fell of its own accord by the power of God. At Jericho, Israel had only to mop up after the Lord had rendered the city defenseless. Here, I was taken and burned, and Israel fought a battle. True, they didn't have to surmount the walls of the city, but that was because of the clever plan with which they went into battle. And no doubt, to some degree, because of the confidence of the men of Bethel and I, that having beaten Israel once, they could do it again. They fought in obedience to the directions the Lord had given them, but those Israelite soldiers no doubt finished the day exhausted. Some of them were bloody with wounds, and some of them no doubt had been killed in action. We are never told that Israel lost no one in these engagements, that all the casualties were on the other side. So what we find in Joshua 8 what is what we find in Deuteronomy and what we find in Romans. Cheek to jowl. The unqualified assertion that salvation is of the Lord, it is his achievement, his gift, solely the result of his work, and the unqualified assertion that salvation comes to pass when men and women choose life by putting their trust in God and acting accordingly. Not one, not the other, both together. And the more one thinks about this, certainly the more I have thought about it through the years, and the Bible forces us to think about this very often, the more obvious it, comes, it becomes to me, not only that both statements are true, even though I cannot fully reconcile them together in my own mind, in some neat system of biblical teaching, but that both statements must be true. Every honest Christian knows very well that God has done for him or her what he or she could not and would not have done for himself or herself. Not only the cross of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead, but the changing of our hearts, the granting of faith, the nourishment, protection, and strengthening of that faith. It was an Arminian, a free willer, if you will, a man who was sure that the ultimate arbiter of human salvation was the human will, who believed that the Bible teaches that faith is and must be the unfettered act of the human will and not the gift of God, who nevertheless wrote about his own salvation, his own coming to faith in Christ. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Which prompted Rabbi Duncan's jest, what's become of your free will now, my friend? What is more, every Christian will admit that we pray to a God 
who has the whole world and everything in that world in his hands. Joshua certainly didn't raise his hand with sword in the fist in the hopes that God might be able to deliver his people from this enemy, that he might keep his promise to deliver I into Israel's hand. He looked to God because that's where salvation comes from. I know myself far too well, and I know the Bible far too well to imagine that my salvation, my entrance into heaven, depended upon my decision either at the beginning or at every point along the way. The Lord is my rock and my salvation. On the other hand, it's perfectly obvious to me that I must believe, I must continue to believe, I must continue to claim the promise and the achievement of God in Jesus Christ, and that I must continue to live in keeping with what God has said and God has done. I know that intuitively, but I also know it because of the emphatic teaching of the Word of God. I see how right it is for me to give glory, all glory to God for my salvation, and to take with utmost seriousness my responsibility to trust and obey. Not one or the other, both together. Indeed, the more I think about this, the more obvious it becomes to me that I wouldn't want it any other way. I don't want to take any credit for my my salvation. The thought is abhorrent to me as both utterly untrue and as callous ingratitude. But I don't want God's gift to me in any way to become an excuse for my indolence or indifference or useless living. Perfect salvation is God's grace and God's gift and my response of faith and obedience. That's how Israel took the promised land. That's how everyone takes it still today. Amen.